Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161CQ 171, book slash new and old, from the easy chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, easy chair number 281, January the 4th, 1993. This evening, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I are going to begin by discussing various books, new and old, books of a variety of uh, kinds, which we think are of interest to you. I shall begin by discussing one that at many points I disagree with, but the author is unquestionably able. He is John Ralston Saul. The book, Voltaire's Bastards, The Dictatorship of Reason in the West. It was published by the Free Press of Macmillan in 1992. What Saul points out in this book is that we have, in recent generations, looked at everything rationalistically. We have swept aside all the richness of life, the various things that are important to people, and as true heirs of the Enlightenment, we have reduced everything to terms comprehensible by reason. Now there's a great deal he goes into in terms of that, and I'm not going to try to review the whole book except to call attention to one aspect of it. He points out that John F. Kennedy, as president, brought to Washington, D.C. Robert McNamara, and McNamara applied to the problems of national defense, a rationalistic approach which he felt would revolutionize the uh, defense posture of this country and its financial status. Instead of asking the manufacturers to manufacture only those things that were necessary for national defense, he decided that several times our national needs uh, of these equipments should be manufactured and then sold to all the third world countries all over the world. Of course, these countries, some of which have populations as low as a couple of hundred thousand, did not have the money for state-of-the-art weaponry. And so they decided in Washington the thing to do was to loan them the money to buy our weaponry and thereby create prosperity for us. Very quickly, Britain, then France, Sweden, and other countries got into it. Countries like those in the Far East and also Red China and uh, among them and Brazil 
which is the primary producer now of armored vehicles. Well, by 1972, it became apparent that not even the interest on these things was going to be paid. But the loans have continued at an accelerated rate as well as the sale, if you can call it that, of the weaponry. So now the whole world is armed to the teeth as never before in history. And having gone into Somalia, we find that we are faced there with the weaponry primarily of the USSR and of the United States. And it is not going to be a case of fighting primitives with primitive weapons. Moreover, it is providing the opportunity for conflict all over Africa and all over the world so that a thousand soldiers die every day somewhere in the world out of these conflicts which are aspects of civil, civil wars, borders, skirmishes and the like. And as the economic recession deepens, what we can expect is that having the weaponry and still getting more weaponry, they're going to use it to seize food from other peoples. So that anyone who believes that we have blissful days ahead is living under an illusion. Douglas, would you like to carry on now? Well, I remember my brother was in the Air Force during McNamara's tenure, and uh, I remember him saying one time when he came home from an overseas assignment that uh, McNamara's uh, nickname in the military was Mac the Knife, Mm-hmm. and that he went through with the meat axe and, and cut uh, quite a bit, uh, particularly in the Air Force. Uh, I think the other, one of the other things interesting to me is that, you know, we always accuse the Russians of destabilizing third world countries in order to uh, uh, give them an opening. And uh, I think we probably... Uh, or either copying or uh, beat them to the punch in a lot of places. It was uh, it was a horse race to see who was going to desta- destabilize uh, a particular country first. Uh, also, also, most of the loans that were made to those third world countries were uh, a lot of them were Chase Manhattan Bank, and um, uh, it's it's interesting where the money came from. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, the taxpayers are really we're getting down to where the chickens come home to roost now. All of those loans where the interest hasn't been paid and the principal will never be repaid, and in some cases where the countries are even going out of existence um, or or changing uh, politically, uh, those debts will be repudiated, yes. and the U.S. taxpayer is going to be picking up the tab for those loans uh, that have been uh, non-performing as well as uh, eventually uh, repudiated. 
Uh, McNamara came out of uh, U.S. industry, I believe. He worked for Ford Motor Company. Yes. And uh, he really was not a wealth generator while he was at Ford. Ford Motor Company was not doing well at all while he was there. He was there as an efficiency man. He was strictly a, a glorified bean counter and uh, he didn't build the company up uh, uh, to my uh, to my knowledge. Well, John F. Kennedy and McNamara between the two of them will have fathered more wars than any other two men in history. Otto? Well, that is probably true. Now, McNamara was one of the quiz kids that uh, Ford hired. He wasn't one of their successes. Uh, that's the reason that uh, they were happy to see him go to Washington. Most companies don't send their best men to Washington. They need them on the job. But you really began uh, on the question of books. In this one book, I'd like to just say I dug up, going into literary, literary now, an old column written by Max Rafferty. Remember him? Oh, yes. He was the, uh, what was, Secretary of Education for the state of California. Yes. And a very good one. He was hounded out of office by the press. And he put together a list of what he called proper reading for a group called America's Future in New Rochelle, New York. And... Recently, uh, I have to correct myself, recently America's Future, and he wrote this a number of years ago, came out with a special report, Humane Literature in High Schools, written by uh, Russell Kirk, a biographer of T.S. Eliot and other books. And here are his suggestions. I, I've looked at them, and I think that I don't know of any high school in the United States that would come up to this standard, but we could have come up to it in our day, Rush. Mm -hmm. Ninth grade level, Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, Shakespeare's Miss Mids Midsummer Night's Dream, Hawthorne's House of Seven Gables or the Mar Marble Fawn, Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, Sir Walter Scott's Old Mortality or The Heart of Midlothian, Selected poems of Spencer, Burns, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Shelley, Tennyson, Whittier, Longfellow, Chesterton, Kipling, Macefield, Yeats, and Frost. Tenth grade level, Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra or Henry V, Francis Parkman's The Oregon Trail, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, William Makepeace Thackeray's Henry Esmond and Benjamin Franklin's Autobiography. Eleventh grade level, Milton's Paradise Lost, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, Herman Melville's Murby, Moby Dick, Charles Dickens's Great Expectations or Bleak House, 
T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, Orwell's Animal Farm, Selected Poems by George Herbert, Richard Crashaw, Andrew Marvel, Samuel Johnson, Oliver Goldsmith, and Alexander Pope. Twelfth grade level, Epistles of St. Paul, which incidentally, if taught as literature, is still constitutional. Shakespeare's King Lear, or Coriolanus, Samuel Johnson's Rasselas, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim. Now, I doubt very much if those books are being promoted or recommended today, even on a college level. I had a high percentage of those in grade school and the ninth grade. A handful of them I had in my early college years. It tells you how much we've deteriorated. Well, I think one of the things that is is important is that in Christian schools and home schools, we are beginning to return to the classics. And I've asked Mark to... uh, call attention to some of the things that are now routinely taught in our Chalcedon grade school. Mark, do you want to start off with one of them? Well, uh, I had trouble finding the classics. They're, they're hard to find if you want to, uh, to, to buy them for student use. And um, They're available, but they're hard to find. Because the the big name publishers, they don't when you when you sell a, a classic for uh, two dollars and ninety nine cents in paperback form, there's there's not a whole lot of profit there. So uh, I had a, a difficult time finding anybody who carried the classics. Maybe a book club would once in a while carry one or two, but uh, a, a difficult time. I I did find a source for them, however. And I thought I might uh, list this and give the address for anybody who is interested. Uh, it's called the Book Source, and their address is 4127 Forest Park Boulevard, St. Louis, Missouri, 63108. And it wasn't until I found this catalog that I was able to, to su- supply the school with a number of these. There are many of their. The, the their books are available in paperback for only a few dollars, and I figure if they they last through about three classes of literature, you've uh, given the students these book classics to read for a dollar or two at the most uh, per student. Uh, this book source has lo- thousands of titles, and a lot of them are pure garbage. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, there's take a title here for instance here's one mom the wolf man and me and it's not exactly <laughs> classic literature but if you look carefully through these these pages and pages of fine print of titles there's a lot of classics that you can't find i was the reason i was looking for this and I, this catalog just happened to come in the mail one day we were, they found us on a mailing list somehow and it just happened to come my way 
it's hard to want students to read good literature and then to say, well, find a book in the library and bring it to me, and they were, they were bringing to me was garbage. And like Mom the Wolfman and me, is this kind of things they were bringing, and I'd say, no, try to find something else. So what I recommend for our Christian school or homeschool to do is you're going to have to start accumulating classics. You know, homeschoolers need to do it when they go to uh, used bookstores, uh, yard sales. If you find a classic, you better pick it up. Don't assume just because it's a, it's a famous classic that everybody's heard of that you're going to be able to find it available. And uh, we've had a terrible time finding them. Our, our school library is still lacking many classics that are no longer available. So pick them up wherever you can find them. Um, I picked up about some of the books that I uh, uh, I assigned. I don't teach literature every year, but uh, Captain's Courageous is a great one, uh, particularly for junior high age students because it's about a uh, well, a, just a little brat who uh, is too big for his britches and he gets humbled a little bit and. Uh, uh, it's it's a it's a good story of, of a boy who learns something of character and, and uh, work habits. Uh, David Copperfield is good. It's very intimidating. You give a, a, a student a book that's over 800 pages, and uh, <laughs> it's funny to watch their reaction. David Copperfield was good because the the girls liked it because of the romance. The boys liked it because it's a story of a boy growing up into manhood, and there's a lot of adventure and, and, and such. Kipling's A Jungle Books appeals to a, a variety of students. Some of them like some of the stories, some of them don't, but they uh, are very popular. And when you sign something like this to be reading, you think they're really going to get something out of it, because this is not the type of book, as hard as it is to find, it's not the type of book kids will read today unless you find it for them and you make it available to them. This is why I ordered paperback copies, so I could give each student a copy of this particular book and says, this is what you will read in the next few weeks. You're, you're wrong. You're going to have to find these the good books for students themselves. They're not going to find them on, on their own. You go to a public library and you look at what's there available for them to read. And you're going to have a hard time finding books that you really want them to read. If I may interrupt, Mark, uh, Kipling's Jungle Books are uh, available in exceptionally fine copies by various publishers. They are reprinted as uh, books that are products of the bookmaker's art. Their popularity is with older people who want their children and grandchildren to enjoy something they enjoyed immensely as a boy. So they're not in uh, the kind of edition that a child will normally get and read. They are geared to the older generation. Yes? Well, a few others that I happen to, I assigned one year is Treasure Island which is a, it's a great adventure story. I, all my students like that. That was probably the single most popular because it's a very, um, it's an, a good adventure story. And then so um, 
the action keeps moving in that. Mark Twain, I've had one student who did not like Mark Twain. It's because he said, because I've read it six or eight times already. <laughs> but um, I, I've never had a student who didn't like and It's a good story for a teacher also to read to the students a chapter or so a day. They, they Do you prefer really like it. And I always read it in the spring when they're thinking about... Uh, when they get a little bit of spring fever anyway, it's, it's a great one to get them ready for summer vacation. You use uh, Tom Sawyer. How about Huck Finn? Um, I had that too. I didn't assign it that particular year just because I was kind of trying to diversify a little bit on what they read. But uh, I do have that. And if I teach it uh, again, that's probably one that I will assign. I just brought the books that I actually did assign in one in one school year. Uh, the other book was that I assigned that school year was uh, Robinson Crusoe, which was the book they liked the least, but I thought it was, in a sense, one of the best books because it's a very introspective book, and, and students today aren't really geared, many of them aren't really geared for a book that's introspective. He spends much of the book considering how the fact that here he is on an island all alone and how he's taken his life for granted he's wasted his opportunity his parents are alone thinking he's dead and uh, a lot of it is is his spiritual life too he doesn't really appreciate what God has done for him and here he is on this island so he spends much of the time contemplating his life and uh, the poor choices that he's made and he comes to a, uh, a better understanding of uh, his, uh, his uh, Christian faith as well. So it's a, it's a, of all these books, Robinson Crusoe is the most Christian. But the introspection was um, a little dull for junior high students. But uh, the key to having them read the classics is you're going to have to find them for students. They're hard. They're hard. They can be hard to find, and so I. That's a good source. Like I say, it's got a lot of nonsense books in it. They've got over six thousand titles. Just about anything available for schools is in there, but they do have to have them. And you, if you need them, I suggest you order these books in advance, because these come from different publishers, and it will sometimes take months for me if I order from this catalog to get them, because some of these publishers apparently they go out of print. They'll make a run, small run, and then uh, months later I'll receive these these books that'll be shipped directly from the publisher. Well, I'd like to uh, turn our attention to a very remarkable book. The title is The Family Romance of the French Revolution, published by the University of California Press in 1992, the author, Dr. Lynn Hunt. What she has done in this work is a remarkable study, although the fault is that she is so narrowly scholastic she does not want to make a single application to the present. Now the term family romance is a rather technical one. It comes basically from Sigmund Freud. 
and with Freud it meant the neurotic's fantasy of getting free from the parents of whom he now has a low opinion and of replacing them by others who as a rule are of a higher social standing. Now, Hunt takes this term, family romance, and alters its meaning. She says that uh, at the time of uh, the onset of the French Revolution, the history of the culture had a very different background than ours. It had a semi-patriarchal view of the family. The father was regarded as the head of the household and over him the local authorities finally going all the way up to the king who was the father of the country and was so termed. And this was the case in country after country. And people felt a security and a satisfaction in the concept of the nation as a greater family. Well, with the rise of the revolutionary element, there was an immediate hostility to this analogy. The family became the target of venom and hatred and of pornography, beginning with the particular local family going on up to the king. And a vast literature, pornography, dealt with Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette in particular to attack them as viciously as possible. All authority was damned. The idea was, in effect, not reverence for authorities over one, but, in effect, a rape of all authorities over one. So that the language of family life was transferred to politics, and politics and pornography be became essentially interrelated. The language of the revolutionaries, the language of the writers of the day, went overboard on attacking normal family life and the normal patriarchal authorities in a society in favor of illicit sexuality, uh, rape, homosexuality, sodomizing people above one, and so on, as the way to deal with the entire social order. And as a result, the destruction of the concept of the family in the patriarchal sense meant a demand for a particularly vicious and venomous 
sexualized revolutionary fervor. Now, of course, the implications of uh, Dr. Hunt's work are far-reaching. We again have the rise of pornography. We again have homosexuality exalted and lesbianism and rape has become more and more commonplace and we have had books by rapists who speak of the delight in raping women who are of a superior social scale than they superior educationally or if on campus superior intellectually the whole goal being, as at the time of the French Revolution, to pull everyone down to their level and to trod them underfoot. So, Hunt's work is very important, far more important than she has indicated in her book. I read one review where the implications were very clearly seen and pointed out. And I think we should see those implications because they are deadly. But Lynn Hunt studiously avoids any and all reference to the implications of the family romance of the French Revolution for our time. I think we need to recognize that she has touched on something which is far more important than she realizes because there is an aspect to this that we have not dealt with it came with a hostility towards Christianity she doesn't go into that but very superficially scarcely at all but it was a very much very much a part of the revolutionary language. After all, God is the father of all. And in a revolt against the world of the family, this is the key, striking from the local family all the way up to God. Well, this uh, assault uh, is continuing today. I was listening to the radio and heard a, uh, a review of a book written by a woman uh, anthropologist and uh, her thesis is to equate uh, humans as animals and drawing parallels between uh, uh, human behavior and animal behavior. So uh, there's been no let up in this attempt to tear everybody down to the lowest level and uh, they are using people with degrees uh, putting them out there as experts and uh, it's really is a seems to me an orchestrated movement yes and uh, there seems to be no one in the at least in the scientific community that can get any press uh, that is able to refute 
what people uh, write in uh, some of these books, uh, such as this uh, anthropologist. And uh, it's very tough unless you've got someone like this reviewer on the radio today that's willing to take issue with them. Well, radio has become the last bastion of free speech in the country, especially at night, with the exception of Rush Limbaugh, who's on in the from 12 to 3, I think, in the East. And he is uh, he's, he's almost alone, lonely so I really expect that he'll be knocked off the air one of these days, but so far they haven't found the right method. Well, I don't have any particular books in mind tonight. Uh, I've been more interested in, in uh, my mind has turned more to the question of the role of literature in the United States today and the way that uh, I grew up as a reader. Uh, I was educated by reading. I wasn't educated uh, much be in the school sense, but I worked my way up <clears throat> from fairy tales onward. And I remember that there was a branch library down the block when we lived in Manhattan, and I could be found there at any time. My mother, I never forget my mother coming into that library to drag me home for dinner and greatly irritated <laughs> with me because I was always there. Uh, they didn't have school readers in libraries in those days. You just had to find a book and read. And uh, my thinking with my daughter when she was born, when was growing up, I began to read to her before she could speak. And uh, at one point, my wife said, really, she can't even speak yet, you know. And I was reading uh, the, one of the fairy tales, Sleeping Beauty, in the original version, not the Disney version. And I said, well, you may be right, but she seems to be listening. At any rate, when we reach the point where the prince kisses the sleeping beauty and brings her to life, I stopped and looked down at her, and she raised her face to be kissed. <laughs> so she was following the yes. fairy tale. And later on, I made a list of all the books that I bought for Liz in her <coughs> early early childhood and uh, beyond certain age of course we cut off and I turned it over but Calcedon never used it there was an awful lot of fairy tales and the list and it's my thinking at that time was that if you're going to teach somebody to play a musical instrument they start with the scales which is the deadliest thing in the world when it would be much easier to start with tunes with melodies and give the kid a chance to get some feeling for music before they get involved in the scales and the, and the key signatures and the rest of the nuts and bolts of music. And to entice Liz into literature, I found fairy tales opened up the gates of imagination, and they were also very moral. The person who wasn't the smartest, but who was the best, who was gooder, you might say, usually wound up winning, and the clever, villainous people wound up losing. And I thought it 
planted a lot of subliminal lessons. Since then, I've become aware of the fact that fairy tales are not particularly condoned uh, in Christian circles today, and I'm really at a loss to understand why. I mentioned your list to somebody at the time, and they begged to borrow it, and I've forgotten who it was, and I've never seen it again. Great. (laughs) I thought it was simply rejected. No. I mentioned it to someone uh, very favorably, and they asked if I could send it to them, promised to return it, and uh, so often is the case, I never saw it again. I'll dig it up if you'd like to see it again. Yes, sometime after both of us have finished our travels, I would like to see it. I think uh, use of television by many parents to park their kids in front of a television set just destroys them. They don't, you know, either don't have the time or not inclined to read to young children uh, today, and uh, unless that's done either at the time you started auto before they can speak or before they can read, uh, the seed doesn't get planted, uh, it doesn't grow. Well, of course, our TV set was broken for 12 years. How'd you break it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the 1890s, people read on an average about four hours a day. In the 1990s, or at least 80s, the average time that children spend before a television set is about four hours. So television has replaced reading with a great many. Your, your uh, grandchild, uh, Joe's children, have no TV, so they're readers. I heard a school... Omnivorous um, readers, yes. I heard a school administrator, this was quite some years ago, too, uh, that they had determined through studies that children who arrived at uh, kindergarten had already consumed over 3,000 hours of television Mm -hmm. time, had logged 3,000 hours of television time, and they referred to that as unrelated input data. (laughs) Well, of course, I don't know how long it'll take the American people to realize that television is programmed by enemies of this culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. They are absolutely alien to this culture. Well, you can you can see that in some of these uh, so-called beloved programs like uh, Sesame Street. Uh, have you ever sat there and watched that? It's once, deadly. Once there was a baleful male black man counting from one to ten in tones that made that made these numbers sound threatening. And I turned it off. Uh, I did like the Muppets when they first appeared, but uh, a little of that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Mark, did you want to comment? On well, a lot of people are getting rid of their televisions. Uh, Twenty years ago, if you said uh, children shouldn't be exposed to television as a bad influence on them, a lot of people would have looked at you as though you were a little strange. Now it's, it's going to be a whole lot harder to get a, a look like that, to make a statement. Most people will have to at least give tacit approval that there's a lot of um, 
truth to that statement because uh, it's just so hard to justify what's on television today. Well, they can see the results. It's not safe to walk to the store in the evening anymore. So I think uh, children today, are, at least in uh, you know Christian homes, are watching far less television than uh, uh, children 20 years ago did by far. The Hidden Family was reading my books to their children. Yes. I was shocked to hear that. <laughs> I was pleased, but I was also shocked. <laughs> I think, of, excuse me, I think a lot of what Otto was saying about the um, fairy tales. A lot of people are a little nervous about fairy tales because of the New Age movement. They're afraid it's predisposing them to the occult magic. Personally, I think people overreact to 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 some things and the spiritual influence of, 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 of such things. But I think that's come become a, a very popular thing to now to, to react against anything that's, that's called itself magic. Well, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right, because the rise of Satanism has, has changed. We thought of it, you know, as totally innocent. Yes. You've had two or three generations of writers now who've exploited uh, fairy tales for their own ends. Dorothy reminded me about a week ago of something I had forgotten, namely that Lenny began as a writer of very modern fairy tales. I didn't know that. And that uh, tells you what has happened. A great many groups have reached out to control the mind of children by fashioning a new type of fairy tale that doesn't have the deep roots in folk cultures that the old kind did. I have the unexpurgated volume of all of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. You know, Disney did a terrible thing. He, he cut the guts out of all kinds of uh, very old traditional children's literature and it's almost like Montero Lobato in Brazil he uh, he took over the whole area for a period Hans Christian Andersen's stories as they were originally written are quite complicated and eerie almost but very interesting I'd like to deal with a book now which is quite unusual, very simply written, but profound. The author is Maggie Gallagher. The title, Enemies of Eros, How the Sexual Revolution is Killing Family, Marriage, and Sex, and What We Can Do About It. Published in 1989 by Bonus Books in Chicago and still available. She begins with a flat-out statement, a sentence that reads, America today is one of the most sexually repressed societies in history. And then she goes on to point out what she means by it. What feminism and liberalism have done is to work to create an androgynous society in which people are neither male nor female, but 
a kind of neutral uh, being. She quotes, for example, a feminine sociologist, Jesse Bernard, oh, and I quote, A variety of ways have been suggested for reducing women's desire for babies, which she wants to do. One commonly suggested proposal to achieve this goal is a greater encouragement of labor force participation by women. More esoteric ideas have to do with the possibility that we could androgenize women, that is, give them the hormone androgen, for androgenized women apparently tend to be less interested in motherhood than other women. No one has yet suggested Skinnerian behavior modification by means of aversive conditioning, but someone doubtless will in time. Girls will be given an electric shock whenever they see a picture of an adorable baby until the very thought of motherhood becomes anathema to them. End of quote. Well, what she points out is that by working to destroy femininity in women and masculinity in men, and creating a kind of uh, unisex culture, they have totally warped life. They have worked to create men and women who, when they think of sex, think only of pleasure, not of the family and of responsibility. And what we have, therefore, today is an ideology. And she has a superb definition of ideology. An ideology is an idea that is afraid. It, therefore, has to masquerade with a host of uh, posturing uh, whereby you try to evade the natural God-given facts. She points out that because of the anti-familistic nature of modern society, women are the victims. Because, she says, when a society fails to protect the family, it fails to protect women. And as a result, she says that women have never had it as bad as they have now. They are the victims of feminism, of liberalism, of this new sexual repression. She quotes some amazing statements from a variety of feminist leaders in which their hostility to the fact of male and female, the family, children, is phenomenal. So she calls what we have today a pornographic culture. It is, she says, a pornographic culture because we have separated sexuality from the family. We have said it is something that we have to teach every child from the first grade on up in terms of 
enjoyment. And so you have the situation in New York City today where they plan to introduce education into homosexuality, anal intercourse, and much more to first graders. Because the whole idea is, as she points out, sexuality must be separated from maleness and femaleness and the family and linked simply to experiencing pleasure. And uh, so hereditary rights, family rights, obligations, all of those things are the source of attack. And we have a world developing which will be totally destructive of the family, of religion, and of maleness and femaleness. She's been through the ringer. I won't go into her personal experiences herself. And so she writes out of experience and knowledge with a passion and intensity. It's a remarkable book. Well, I've, uh, I wouldn't pretend to know what's in the mind of women in our culture today, but I have seen um, interviews of women who chose the career track instead of the family track, who came out of the 60s and 70s out of the universities and bought the Betty Friedan uh, philosophy and, and uh, lived it and suddenly came to the realization after they got pretty late in the childbearing uh, time window that they had been conned simply and said so in so many words and there were about a half a dozen women on this panel being interviewed and they had all achieved you know became executives and companies and had gotten law degrees and so forth and been pretty successful and then did a complete turnaround you know somewhere in their late yes. 30s around 40 years old did a complete turnaround and were willing to admit that uh, they had made a mistake and that uh, they had missed out they felt that they had missed out they didn't do it all as they thought they were going to do when they came out of college that was the one of the big terms that they're I, I want it all mm -hmm. well they didn't get it all in going after in turning away from the family and uh, going after the uh, the career track they missed the thing that, that they re later realized was most vital to them well there was a particular fact that was startling to me Earlier I'd mentioned uh, the book by uh, Saul, Voltaire's Bastards, Rationalism and Reason Governing Everything. Well, she says that where families are totally rationalistic about having children and their babies are completely planned, so their approach is totally rationalistic. You have 
the highest child abuse. Mm-hmm. Because they're not capable of coping with the irrational. And you can't expect a baby to act rationally or a child. Mm-hmm. So they've begun with an act of reason. They've decided to have a family. And they have someone to contend with, a baby, that doesn't fit the rationalistic mold. And the results are vicious. Well, I think they feel that if they can break that nurturing chain, you know, the the natural tendency of young girls who, you know, around 12, 13 years old, sometimes even younger, want to hold an infant. Uh, you know, I've watched it, where uh, even at uh, chapel sometimes on Sunday, some of the younger girls will want to hold an infant. And... Uh, Obviously, it's a pleasurable experience for them. Yes. And uh, there seems to be a natural nurturing uh, instinct there. And uh, these people want to break that chain. Yes. They work to dissociate girls from dolls and get boys <laughs> to associate themselves with dolls because they're going to break the cultural conditioning, as they call it. This uh, woman that I mentioned earlier, anthropologist that wrote this book and was being reviewed on the radio today, she was in equating animal behavior with uh, human behavior, was trying to equate the uh, uh, what uh, she felt was the uh, choice aspect that's being pushed by the liberals now for women uh, in uh, whether or not to have a child with the the uh, what she described as the instinct of animals, uh, uh, female uh, animals of various species, to either kill or abandon or eat their young as choice, and uh, whether or not to uh, to uh, nurture uh, their young. Uh, so uh, these people are nuts. Well, the comparison between humans and animals, of course, ignores the soul. It is a sort of an immoral comparison. And the female animal does cull the young. If they have a uh, part of the litter, uh, dog litter, for instance, is obviously inferior, and they can tell by smell, apparently they will kill the inferior ones. And in some instances, the male animal will go around and cull the litter of the various... Uh, they're talking now about mammals. Well, I think to lift the thing up a little bit beyond the specific, that uh, it's a great example of the tremendous impact of literature to be able to talk women out of being mothers. This is an accomplishment of propaganda which probably doesn't have any any, uh, societal precedent. We do know, of course, that the upper-class wealthy families of Rome began to restrict their number of children because of the taxation. In order to keep the estate intact enough to pass on through the generations they had to restrict the number of heirs that they had 
and uh, countries which didn't do that, like Ireland, for instance. Ireland destroyed its land because all the members of the Irish family had an equal share in the inheritance, and as a result, in a few generations, they were all reduced to paupers. Uh, the English did it better because they had primogeniture, the eldest son inherited all the land and therefore the land remained in the hands of the family until this century when taxation came in. But the effect of literature, the effect, propaganda is a variation of literature and all the things that you see on television and the films and everything that you hear on the news program comes from somebody having written it out first. The uh, radio and television news programs come straight from the wire service, word for word. The people who work in these studios and who read the news don't have the intelligence to write the news. They don't have the intelligence to summarize it. They're just readers. So what we're talking now about is the effect of literature on civilization and in civilization is incalculable. And yet we are told constantly that we're living in an image age, we're living in a picture age, that literature is no longer effective. But it is effective, and one of the worst parts about it is the book that Rush began with tonight, written by a professor on the family business, the, the concept of the family at the time of uh, Louis XVI, I believe, uh, which was continued, by the way, in Europe long after that. After all, Hegel referred to the Kaiser as the father of the German family and so forth. Uh, that book he described as restricted to that time and that period because it was written by a, a professional, a professor, a teacher, who all teachers are now automatically considered scholars, no matter how stupid they are. And uh, this is a teacher, no doubt, of history, who was teaching, who, whose specialty is only that particular era. Anything beyond that era, she, she's not supposed to be uh, expert on, so she won't write about. By splintering literature in this fashion, we have been provided with an immense amount of information and without the capacity to put it together. And if we discuss books as such, we're continuing the splintering. Well, our time is just about over. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.